So yeah, the title of my talk is called The Sufi and the Sickle, uh, Mystical Marxism in Rural Pakistan. So let me start with a story from fieldwork that captures some of the central concerns of my presentation today. One evening, I was sitting with Allah Baksh Baloch in a cramped room adjacent to his house that served as his batak or a guest room. We were caught up in some deep conversation over a book, me and Allah Baksh, when one of Allah Baksh's friends entered the batak suddenly. The friend noticed the physical copy of the book next to Allah Baksh. Gazing over its cover, which had the face of a bearded man, the friend asked to Allah Baksh, what peer are you reading about? What peer is that? So the friend, Allah Baksh's friend, assumed based on his ragged and unkept beard that the man on the cover of the book was some Sufi spiritual leader or peer, figures that are quite popular in this part of Pakistan. So I have like some pictures that I took from the field work. This is the shrine, one of the shrines of a Sufi peer who was built in the, it was built in the 13th century. The Sufi peer is called um, Saki Savra. And the area, the shrine is itself called Saki Savra as well. And that's his kind of shrine on the left. And that you can see worshipers there. Um, and there's many such peers like this across the region that I studied. So after the friend asked the question, Allah Bucks responded, why? He's the greatest peer that ever lived. And he was referring to the person on the cover of the book. Why do you say that? The friend said. Allah Baksh replied, what are peers anyway? They have special powers to solve people's problems. In that respect, the person on the cover is the greatest of all peers because he tackled the root causes of people's problems. So the book was actually a short summary in Urdu of Marx's volume one of Capital. And the bearded fellow on the cover, who the friend assumed was a peer, the spiritual saint or leader, was actually none other than Karl Marx. So that's a picture you can see of how the friend could be confused by this. Um, this is not a, the, on the left is a peer, peer Valiat in Ayat Khan, not a peer from the region of Pakistan where I did field work, but a peer nonetheless. And you can see how people can confuse the peers with Karl Marx in appearance. So Allah Baksh went on to draw several comparisons between Sufism and Marxism. He suggested that it was significant that Karl Marx and Khwaja Ghulam Farid, another popular peer over here in this part of Pakistan, it was significant that both sported large, untrimmed, and ragged beards. Through their untidy appearances, both embodied an ethos oriented towards truth. Both Marx and Sufi peers were skeptical of appearances of the way things first appeared. And you can think here, for, uh, for instance, of Marx's discussion of the commodity in volume one of Capital. Both Sufism and Marxism, Allah Baksh went on, participated in a shared project of uncovering the hidden essence of the world, struggling, in other words, for truth, or haqiqat or al-haq, which are, and al-haq is an Arabic word for truth, that it's also one of God's names in Islam. We see this intersection as well between Sufism and Marxism, Allah Baksh continued, in Sufi poetry. These poets, Sufi poets, typically centered their poetry on the figure of the Mahbub or beloved, understood to be both a longed-for lover and God himself, a combined love for humanity that, and truth that, for Allah Baksh at least, also motivated communists as well. 
Ultimately, for Allah Baksh, and I quote Allah Baksh here, Marxism was simply a logical continuation of Sufism. So Allah Baksh had learned about this relationship between Marxism and Sufism from this person called Sibatullah Mazari, and I'll hereon refer to him as um, Sibatullah. In the early 1970s, Sibatullah, who belonged to a poor tenant family, led anti-landlord agitations in his village in a peripheral region of South Punjab, Pakistan. Soon, Sibatullah, like the teenage Allah Baksh, was recruited by the Communist Mazdur Kisan Party, or Worker Peasant Party, a party which, inspired by Maoism, had begun organizing pe peasants in the countryside, and they organized peasants against what it called the remnants of feudalism, and the party's ultimate aim was to establish what it called a Mazdur Kisan Raj, or worker peasant rule. Though belonging to a, the so-called masses, Sibatullah would join the leading ranks, would eventually join the leading ranks of the party, becoming a member of its central committee and eventually vice president of its Punjab branch. He did so in large measure because of the momentum of his local movement. This momentum was attributable in part to Sibatullah's theoretical and political practice, which established an equivalence between Marxism and Sufi Islam, an equivalence that I called mystical Marxism. That's my language and not necessarily Sibatullah's. As I show, he established his equivalence at both the immediate political level, arguing that both Sufism and Marxism necessarily op opposed quote unquote feudal landlordism, also called Jagidari in this context. And he also made this equation between Sufism and Marxism at a deeper philosophical level suggesting that both Sufism and Marxism were committed to truth or hakikat. Because of this reconciliation between Sufism and Marxism, Sibwatullah, the communist leader, came to be known in the region and still is known as Sufi Sibwatullah and a hakikat pasand, which translates as truth seeker. So in this presentation, I historically reconstruct the life of Sibwatullah, a figure widely admired in the region, though little known in Pakistan generally, and I do so because of the unrealized possibilities Sibatullah represented. Too often, historiography has privileged histories of experience over what Reinhard Koselleck calls horizons of expectation, those possibilities latent in the past, but not yet real materialized and realized in the future. Though Sibatullah did not achieve his political objectives, his life evokes several possibilities. In a world of conflict-ridden difference, it shows the prospects for forging those unities, in this case, between religion and secular thought that may be necessary for liberation. And against those scholars who have tried to reconcile Marxism and religion in scholarly prose, and I'm thinking here about the school of critical realism, which I don't discuss in this presentation, but I do elsewhere. Against those scholars who've tried to reconcile Marxism and religion in scholarly prose, Sibutullah's life reveals how a subaltern actor an ordinary person might also come to theorize this equivalence between Marxism and religion, and in the context of a political struggle. That is, I show how a religious Marxism might look as a theoretical as well as a political practice. Various circumstances led Sibatullah towards this articulation of Marxism and Islam, including his poor peasant upbringing amidst a landlordism that wielded Islam to reproduce its hegemony, contingent encounters with communist and progressive leaders, religious leaders during the popular upheavals of the 60s and 70s, 
and shifting agrarian political economies consequent to the 1972 land reforms, which I'll talk about in a bit. However, Sibutullah's theorizing, like arguably all theory making, was also relatively autonomous from these determinations, uh, meaning the presence of certain distinctive ideological elements adhering to Maoism and Sufism specifically could also inspire an articulation. Indeed, it was Maoism's specific attention to a vernacular-driven universalism combined, com combined with Sufism's own universalist possibilities. Both of these things enabled Sufism, enabled, sorry, Sibatullah to articulate Sufism and Marxism. His introduction to the party's Maoism, another ideology whose politics of the mass line and philosophy and practice meant it straddled the universal vernacular, which I'll discuss in a bit, his introduction to Maoism encouraged him, encouraged Subhatullah to comparatively re reflect on various Islams in the region, including his own practice of the religion. Subhatullah specifically engaged with circulating Sufi ideas, including Sufi-inflected Diobandism, which appealed to him because of their universalist possibilities, possibilities inhering in their concept of truth. This engagement culminated in Subhatullah establishing an equivalence between Marxism and Sufism, as both, in his view, struggled for truth. Ultimately, while Maoism's vernacular orientation led Subhatullah towards Sufism, it was their shared universalist elements that then enabled him to equate the two, an equivalent forged, as M. Césaire once put it, and I quote, as a universal enriched by all that is particular, end quote. Subhatullah expressed this mystical Marxism not only in its prose, but also in its political practice. He transformed the master-apprentice relationship at his workshop into a revolutionary Sufi Pir Murid or guide-disciple relation. Um, one, and he mobilized his disciples to organize in their own villages. He recruited Sufi-inflected mullahs or malvis into the Communist Party. He organized annual mullah congregations, and that's what they were called. And he also built insurrectionary Islamic institutions, specifically mosques. These practices, by undermining landlordism's hegemony over Islam, threatened landlordism's reproduction, as I show. So that's just like an outline of the, that was an outline of the argument, which I'm going to develop through, through the, the presentation. Um, to explore Sibatullah's theory and practice of mystical Marxism, um, I draw on 20 months of ethnographic research, oral histories, and a hitherto underexplored set of archives, including police surveillance files, the MKP's internal literature, and the private notebooks of Sibutullah and his comrades. In the presentation's first section, I discuss Sibutullah's early life in order to unearth those encounters and contexts that was later shaped his mystical Marxism, what I call the prehistory of mystical Marxism. In the second section of the paper, of the presentation, I show how Sibatullah's theorization was made possible by the vernacular orientation of Maoism and the universalist possibilities of Sufism. In the third section, I focus on how he practiced mystical Marxism. And then I end with some concluding remarks. So a prehistory to mystical Marxism. Um, so Sibatullah was born in 1944 in a village in Bangla Itcha a village in the former Punjab frontier district of Dera Ghazi Khan. So this is like a map that you could see on the left is undivided British Punjab. Um, and then on the far left 
of undivided British Punjab, you can see the district of Dera Ghazi Khan, which borders Balochistan. The map on the right is the map of that district, Dera Ghazi Khan, which was partitioned in the 1980s <clears throat> into two districts. But when Sibutola was born, it was one district. And Sibutola lived and organized towards the southern end of the district near a town called Rajan. Um, so this region of, you know, of Pakistan is distinct from the rest of Punjab um, due to the presence of Baloch tribes, typically headed by a single hereditary chief called a Tumandar and various petty chiefs called Sadars. After Punjab's annexation in 1849, those chiefs that submitted to British rule acquired immense landed estates or Jagirs. On these estates, landed chiefs, also called and still called Jagidars, collected both land revenue from peasant proprietors and rents from their tenants. Sibatullah's family were poor tenants from a Baloch chief from the Mazari tribe called Ashik Mazari. And you can see here, um, this is a picture of one of Ashik Mazari's you know, ancestors who was one of the, the, the chiefs who collaborated with the British. He's sitting somewhere in the middle and he's sitting next to one of the commissioners for the British commissioners for Dera Ghazi Khan. This photo was taken around 1896. And so his Imam Mazari's descendant, um, Ashik Mazari was the main kind of, one of the key opponents to Sibutullah in his uh, political movement. And one was one of the main landlords in Sibutullah's village. Um, this is a picture that I've taken from fieldwork. On the left is actually Ashik Mazari's compound in the village. You can see the sides of it. Ashik Mazari is now deceased, but his estate is, is run by his children. And that's, you can see a picture of it on the left. It's quite massive. And then on the right is a picture kind of, of where tenants not live, but actually where they socialize. And it's, you can just see how cramped and how the contrast there between, you can see the class contrast quite clearly between the two types of uh, dwellings that the peasant and the landlords um, occupy. Um, the right is not a dwelling per se, it's a, there's a shared guest house um, or betak. So apart from the kind of the Mazari tribal chiefs, the other group of landlords around Sibatullah's village belonged to the Magdums, who together with the Baloch chiefs sat at the helm of the Jagidari Nizam, or what is, um, we can translate as the feudal system or the Jagidari. And these are terms that are still used today. Um, while Baloch chiefs tried to secure their legitimacy by mobilizing tribal fidelities, Magdum landlords used, as one of Sibatullah's comrades put it, and I quote, the medicine of spirituality. Magdum landlords claimed common descent from Prophet Muhammad using this genealogical assertion, what is called the ideology of Sayyidism and their patronization of local Sufi shrines, shrines as a way to legitimize their landholdings. Some peasants even, and I quote from a um, newspaper, considered the Magdums alongside Allah. But alongside this landed inequality and its legitimation via Sufi Islam was an anti-landlord insurgent Islam, that of Ubedullah Sindhi, the Imam Inqalab or the Imam of the revolution. A Diobandi by training, Sindhi would give this otherwise puritanical and scripturalist Islam both a Sufi and politically subversive twist. He did so by drawing on his experiences in the Soviet Union, which he visited in 1922, as well, on, as, well as on Diobandi's own genealogy. Sindhi specifically drew on the writings of Shah Waliullah, 
who emphasized mystic Ibn Arabi's universal concept of unity of being or wahdat al-wajud to create what people called a Sudi, pseudo-waliullah communism. Obedullah Sindhi and later his son would propagate this Sufi and socialist inflected Diobandism across South Punjab and Sindh. Um, and in fact, Ubaidullah Sindhi lived very close and spent some his childhood in a town called Jampur, which is very close to where Subhatullah grew up. So while both Magdum's Sufism and Ubaidullah Sindhi's revolutionary Diobandism would later shape Sibatullah's interaction with Islam, neither directly influenced him in his early years. As his, peasants, as his comrade, um, Malik Akbar told me, Sibatullah was just an ordinary Muslim, and I quote, he had a beard and prayed, end quote. What did directly impact Sibatullah during this period, according to Malik Akbar, was encounters in Karachi, where Sibatullah moved in the late 1960s to find work. It was there that he trained to be a TV and radio mechanic, a trade whose relations of production, specifically the master-apprentice relation, would, as we'll see later, play an important role in Sibatullah's mystical Marxist practice. It was also in the Karachi city that Sibatullah encountered radical ideas and politics. Since the late 1960s and 70s, and the early 70s was a period of popular upheavals in the city and surrounding countryside. Not only did he befriend striking workers in Karachi's Lundi Kurangi industrial area, Sibatullah also met peasant leaders from the Sindh Hadi Committee, an organization mobilizing Sindh's landless peasants called Hadis in Sindh against landlords. According to Master Sajid Malik, a retired school teacher and another former comrade of Sibatullah's, Sibatullah may have even encountered the per person behind the Sindh Hadi committee, called a person called GM Sayyid, who was known to entertain various political dissidents in his Karachi home. Similar to what Sibatullah would go on to do, Sayyid, GM Sayyid and his protege, Ibrahim Joyo, delinked Sufism from landlordism and combined it with Marxism, as well as other philosophies and religions. To GM Sayyid, Sufi mysticism went beyond doctrine and ritual to center instead the unity of being, a mystical core Sayyid believed was present in all religions. While Sayyid, like Sindhi Ubedullah Sindhi, emphasized Sufism's universalism in his theoretical writings, Sayyid in his political writings and politics stressed the vernacular dimensions of Sufism. GM Sayyid located Sufism as part of the distinct heritage of the Sindhi homeland or Sindhu Desh in order to legitimize his argument for Sindhi separatism. You know, he was Sindh as a province in Pakistan, and GM Sayyid was one of the major Sindhi nationalists calling for the province to become an independent nation state. Sibatullah would, once he joined the Mazdur Kisan Party, the Communist Party, take a different approach to reconciling Sufism and Marxism, emphasizing more like Ubaidullah Sindhi, Sufism's universalism over its vernacularization. Nevertheless, Sibatullah's early encounters with Sayyid's GM Sayyid Sufism may have still alerted him to the possibilities, the universalist po and insurgent possibilities of Sufism. Sibatullah's exposure to peasant militancy in Sin led him to his first political action, which he'd organized after returning to his village of Bangla Itcha in the early 1970s. Shortly after establishing a TV and radio repair shop in the nearby town, 
close to right next to his village, Sibatullah assisted a group of Punjabi Jat tenants who were being evicted by the Magdum landlord called Ghulam Miran Shah. What set the stage for these sorts of tenant agitations, which occurred across the country, was the 1972 land reforms of Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, prime minister and populist leader of the Pakistan People's Party. The reforms, the land reforms, included a land ceiling, greater tenant protections, and incentives for landlords to modernize farming. Like landlords elsewhere, Ghulam Mirashan evaded state appropriation of his above ceiling land by transferring, transferring the land, but only on paper to his relatives and managers. But influenced by the reforms modernization incentives and fearing the reforms greater tenural protections, the Makhdoom landlord also resumed or took up 100 acres from his Jat tenants, Jat is a Punjabi caste, and he placed that land under self-cultivation, so-called self-cultivation, which was actually euphemism at the time for wage labor-based production. According to Master Sajid, Sibatullah assisted these tenants who were evicted, he assisted them to, as in their struggle to stay on the land as tenants, a struggle that at this stage, Sibatullah's comrade pointed out, did not necessarily aim to overturn Jagidari or feudalism or landlordism. Not only did the Makhdoom landlord refuse to accept the tenants' demands to stay on the land, the Makhdoom landlord also evicted Sibatullah from his repair shop as the repair shop stood on the land which fell within the Makhdoom landlord's estate. Though this early movement of, was ultimately unsuccessful, it did according to Master Sajid, um, one of Sibatullah's comrades, it did shape Sibatullah's later critique, articulated in the form of a mystical Marxism, a critique that said that Jigidari was inherently exploitative, a, a critique that suggested that Jigidari needed to be abolished, not reformed. Sibatullah's leadership of this movement, news of which began circulating throughout the region, also led him to the MKP, that Communist Party, um, and specifically to the party's then Punjab provincial secretary, Imtiaz Alam, who was looking to expand the party to South Punjab. Uh, that's a picture of Sibatullah around the time he joined the, just before, after, just shortly after he joined the Mazdur Kassar party, but in his politically very active days, that's how Sibatullah looked. He must have been around 20 or 30. Oh. So Maoism, meets um, mysticism. I met Imtiaz Alam, who was the um, Punjab provincial secretary at one point of the Mazur Kassan party. I met Imtiaz Alam on several occasions in his office in Lahore, Pakistan's second largest city. When I asked Imtiaz about Sibatullah, with whom he had developed a close friendship, Imtiaz told me that when he, they first met, he was surprised to see the leader he had heard so much about look like a simple villager. And, I, and he said the word simple. And who was dressed in a dhoti, which is a cloth around the lower half of the body. But in these first few encounters with Subatullah, Imtiaz became impressed with Subatullah and quickly convinced Subatullah to join the MKP. Subatullah, for his part, was more than happy to join the MKP um, after realizing that wider and external support was needed to confront landlords like the Magdooms. Though Sibatullah would eventually become the party's Punjab vice president and form MKP units across South Punjab and become, in Imtiaz's word, and I quote, the most astounding peasant leader in the region, 
Sibatullah, despite all that, he kept his simple appearance and demeanor. Quite different from many left leaders in Pakistan, this simple demeanor and appearance and background turned out to be advantageous for the party. As Imtiaz Alam recalled to me, and I quote, Sibatullah kept his lifestyle, which was good. It didn't intimidate the peasantry. He was a good example for our upper middle class leaders and caters. To his credit, Imtiaz at the time had also tried to shed any vestiges of his own elite background, um, wearing shabby clothes, keeping an unkept beard, and becoming what he called a pauper revolutionary. And he did so in order to declass himself. Imtiaz Alam, even though he was, he was a communist leader, actually came from a feudal, so-called feudal elite background from South Punjab, um, but yet tried to de declass himself as well during the 1970s. Common amongst Maoist parties elsewhere, declassing was one aspect of the MKP's politics of the mass line, a politics inspired by Mao Zedong. Mass line politics meant that a communist party's theory and program should evolve through an engagement with the so-called masses. The politics was part of Mao's wider philosophy of practice, whereby revolutionary theory should evolve through mutual interactions with the political practice of the masses and with engagement amongst subaltern classes. Revolutionary theory should evolve and change in this interaction with ordinary people. The MKP was heavily influenced by Mao's philosophy, especially as several party leaders were once aligned to East Bengali peasant leader Maulana Bashani, an admirer of Mao who traveled to China in 1963. At peasant and worker, as at peasants and worker meetings across the country, MKP leaders like Abzal Bangash, and I quote, emphasized the need for building a new Pakistan on the philosophy of Mao Zedong, end quote. Um, and that's a quote from the kind of secret surveillance files that some of this paper draws on. Um, the, the, the secret police in Pakistan at the time was heavily surveilling many of these communists and attending their meetings and whatnot. And so I quote in this paper from some of that surveillance files. To implement this Maoist philosophy, one centered on the masses or the awam in Urdu, the MKP first needed to immerse themselves in the masses, which MKP leaders did not believe previous Pakistani communists had done. Speaking about leaders of the banned Communist Party of Pakistan, who frequently held their meetings in English, MKP President Major Ishaq noted that, and I quote, the Communist Party of Pakistan leaders were culturally alienated from the soil. The leaders had no love no link with the people of the soil, end quote. Uh, so this is a, a slide, this is um, from the party's circular, which is like an internal communication and a newspaper for party members of the MKP. Um, and this is just shows one of the, in one of the newspapers, they have a, a full page devoted to Maoist, celebrating Mao. And up here, it says, in Urdu, Maoist thought is alive and well. And this is a picture of Major Ishaq, the one of the president of the Mazdoor Kisan party. He died in 1982. And he was the one who was quoted as saying that the earlier Communist Party of Pakistan, which I don't talk much about in this paper, um, which was banned in the 1950s, he was saying that that earlier Communist Party was unlinked to the, had no link to the people and was too elite. In addition to declassing, the MKP's national leaders aspired to build that missing link with the masses through various other practices. They participated in ongoing peasant movements, conducted so several investigative or tekikati reports on the countryside, 
elevated local language over national languages like Urdu and English. And important for my purposes, they leaders, MKP leaders engaged seriously with Islam. Leaders would frequently begin their meetings by invoking Allah and would even raise Allah Akbar or God, God is great chants at rallies. At one of those rallies in Sibutullah's village, Major Ishaq even likened the peasants' struggle against landlords to Prophet Muhammad's fight against his enemies. And I quote what he said here. He said at that rally, and I quote, the people who scare us, who martyr us, they are like Abu Jahal and Abu Lahab. Abu Jahal and Abu Lahab are obviously uh, the Prophet's enemies during Prophet Muhammad's time, end quote. Um, during their village tours, MKP leaders would often stay at village mosques, pray, and concertedly engage with local imams um, or religious leaders. Uh, while other notable Pakistani leftists at the time subtly mocked the party's engagement with Islam, implying that it contravened how a proper, i.e. atheistic communist party should act, MKP leaders saw this as necessary to build a mass-oriented movement. And by so one of those communist leaders well-known who mocked the MKP for the MKP's engagement with religion was uh, none other than uh, Tariq Ali, who also had um, was opposed to the MKP for the MKP's more Maoist orientation, whereas um, Tariq Ali was more aligned to Trotskyism. Um, still, the MKP's leadership's interaction with Islam remained largely strategic, limited to these sorts of overtures. Though, the, though leaders did not want to speak out against Islam, neither did they want to conduct a concerted ideological struggle over or within Islam. At a central committee meeting for the MKP's Punjab branch, Major Ishaq forcefully said, um, and I quote, forcefully said that the party's workers should stop this idle talk or bakwas on religion and insisted that they should promote the teaching of scientific socialism, end quote. Um, and that's another quote from the surveillance files. In other words, though leaders certainly wanted to engage in ideological struggles, when it came to Islam, they preferred to defer that to the material class struggle, hoping that the latter would resolve for itself the question of Islam's relationship to communism. Yet Sibwatullah did participate in such a rigorous ideological over and within Islam, the necessity of which stemmed not only from his own pre-existing though under-theorized commitment to Islam, he was a practicing Muslim way before he became involved in communist politics. But he, was also, he also felt the need to engage in the struggle over Islam because of the specific intensity of Islamically reasoned anti-socialism within his own village. After organizing one of his first village-level MKP meetings, Sibatullah noted in his diaries, and I, this paper also draws from his diaries, he noted, and I quote, he had to address many people's concerns about the party, referring to the MKP, especially the incorrect propaganda about socialism and Islam, end quote. What made this socialist propaganda especially acute here was the fact that it stemmed from three sources, the Mukhdum landlords, which I've spoken about earlier, who likened themselves to God, the Baloch chiefs, and Islamist, the Islamist Jamaat-e-Islami party. As socialist ideas spread in the countryside, including in Bangla Itcha, Sibatullah's village, all three of these actors used their influence to emphasize Islam's incompatibility with socialism. Given the intensity of this anti-socialist propaganda, Sibatullah had to ideologically engage with Islam at a deeper level than was felt necessary by MKP leaders like Major Shak. 
especially if he wanted his local struggle in his village to gain momentum. Though his engagement departed from the strategic approach of the NKP, it was nevertheless the party itself, especially its Maoist theory and practice, that opened the door for Subhatullah's engagement with Islam. As Sibatullah's comrade Malik Akbar recalled, and I quote, the party conducted study circles in party schools. We read Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Mao, especially Mao's red book. Every worker had this book. When Sibatullah understood Mao's philosophy, he looked around and was no longer an ordinary Muslim. He became a Sufi and a Hakikat Pasand or truth seeker. By looking around, what this comrade was referring to was the influence of the MKP's Maoist mass-oriented political practice on Sibatullah. As part of this practice, the party regularly organized village tours across the district, tours which, per Imtiaz Alam, Sibatullah became more intimately acquainted with followers of Obedullah Sindhi, that Diobandi socialist that I mentioned in the beginning of the presentation, who had followers across the area. In one tour, for instance, Sibatullah recalled with surprise an encounter with a Diobandi Malvi who, aside from teaching children how to memorize the Quran, was also, and I quote from Sibatullah, a politically aware person who was helping people, and for which reason the Jagidar, or the landlord, was trying to evict this Mawvi, end quote. Sibatullah's introduction to Maoist theory and practice thus led him to comparatively reflect on and engage with various Islams in the region. This engagement ultimately drew him to Sufism, whose universalist possibilities which he first discovered, you'll recall, in Karachi through the Sindh Hari Committee, and then later through adherence of Abedullah Sindhi, this engagement um, and its, the Sufism's universalist possibilities facilitated um, its articulation with Marxism, which Subhatullah also saw in universalist terms. Indeed, though guided by Maoism's vernacular orientation, Subhatullah was still attuned to its, to Marxism's universalist spirit, a universal vernacular commi commitment captured, for instance, when he once told an MKP meeting, and I quote, that his movement would hoist the red flag with the blood of Jagidars on the 1st of May. So obviously the 1st of May is a reference, that's end quote, the 1st of May is a reference to International Workers' Day, but yet he was said, Sibutullah said that he would hoist the red flag with the blood of Jagidars, and that's a reference to local uh, landlord formations. And so you can see that vernacular universalism present in that quote of his. Um, this is another image from the Mazdur Kisan party's internal circular, um, which captures the universalist and vernacular spirit of the MKP generally. Um, on the right here, this is a picture of Ho Chi Minh, and on the left, this, the the translation for the text on the left is connect the shining path of Lundi to Hashnagar. Remind us of Ho Chi Minh. Lundi is an industrial area in Karachi, the same industrial area, in fact, which Sibutullah encountered when he went to Karachi, Karachi and was part of radicalizing him. So that's the industri Lundi's industrial area in Karachi. Hashnagar is a part of Pakistan which, where there was a peasant struggle also led by the MKP, a, a part of a struggle that I don't talk about much in this paper. And of course, Ho Chi Minh is um, Ho Chi Minh, or Vietnam. And so there's a connection being made between industrial workers in Karachi, peasants in another part of Pakistan, and then the internationalist kind of communist movement. And so you could see worker, peasant, and internationalism all coming together in this kind of quote. Um, 
And this is another demonstration of their internationalism. This is another kind of image, a picture I found from the MKP circulars. It's um, members at a party conference singing the international. And in the back, you can actually see Major Ashok. He's a tall figure. Um, this is a picture I think from 1977 at one of the parties. Um, conferences. Though it was Maoism's vernacular orientation that led Sebatullah towards Sufism, it was ultimately then the shared universalist elements that then allowed him to equate the two, an equivalence he centered on truth. Malik Akbar once said, like, and I quote, like Marxists, a Sufi also seeks out truth. And contained within this aspiration for truth, Malik Akbar said, was a love for all humanity on feeling their pain as humanity was one reflection of this truth, end quote. Though Sibatullah did not provide a full written exposition of this equivalence, what I call his mystical Marxism, his practice can shed more light on it. Um, there's also, I do in another version of this, in the paper on which this presentation draws on, I do talk more about the writings of Sibatullah and how his writings also reveal some aspects of mystical Marxism, but here I'm just gonna focus on the practice, his political practice of mystical Marxism. Um, according to Imtiaz Alam, one key site for Sibatullah's political practice was his mechanic repair shop, where Sibatullah was the master or teacher or astad in Urdu to many student apprentices, also called shagids. Sibatullah expanded the pedagogical possibilities of the conventional master-apprentice relation, using the respect he commanded as a master to instruct his apprentices in both craftsmanship and politics. As part of this political training, Sibatullah asked his student apprentices to compose what he called revolutionary essays and revolutionary poems, which were then recited at the local MKP meetings. Sibatullah also asked his student apprentices to preface their performances with the Taweed, or the Declaration of God's Unity, and to interlace their prose with verses from the Quran. And through these practices, Sibatullah taught his apprentices that revolutionary politics also entailed essentially a search for truth or a hakikat. The attention Sibatullah paid to these apprentices and their political training is evident in his diaries, where he meticulously notes who shows up, which students are showing up, their names, how many meetings they come to and whatnot. Not only was the master apprentice a medium through which to communicate his mystical Marxism, the relation was also an expression of his mystical Marxism. For in expanding the pedagogical and political possibilities of the master-apprentice relation, Sibotullah made it resemble the peer-marid relation of Sufi orders. Called tariqa, literally path, Sufi orders consist of peers who guide their disciples, also called marids, on a path towards the truth that is God. A common practice to facilitate this is zikr, or the repetitive chanting of God's names, which is done under the leadership of the peer. Like peers in Sufi orders, Sibatullah strived for his apprentices to appreciate truth, except with a difference. Revolutionary prose replaced the zikr, and an appreciation for truth also entailed a commitment to abolish jagidari or landlordism. In injecting religious content into traditional Sufi practices, Sibatullah may have been inspired by the Sufi-inflected Diobandism of Maulana Bashani, 
and the reformed mysticism of GM Sayyid, who I discussed earlier. Sayyid's, GM Sayyid's protege, Ibrahim Joyo, for instance, frequently organized student trips to Sin's local shrines, especially during the Earth's festival, and elevated the historical holy men to whom these festivals were de dedicated to the status of revolutionaries. However, while Joyo rejected Sufi brotherhoods entirely as he believed they were inherently unequal and patronage-based, Sibatullah repurposed this relationship with his murids, uh, much like Maulana Bashani did as well. Maulana Bashani, in fact, required his disciples to affirm a belief in socialism alongside God and the Prophet as part of his bayah or oath of allegiance. Perhaps both Sibatullah and Bashani recognized that the intimacy and sociality their relationship to disciples afforded could advance revolutionary pedagogy. Alongside learning about mystical Marxism, Sibatullah's disciples were also encouraged to return to their villages, to their own villages, to instruct and organize others, leading to the widening of the peasant movement in this area. As a consequence, his disciples would go on to establish over 40 peasant committees, one in each of their respective villages. In addition to recruiting students and their peasant families, Sibatullah also expanded the movement by enrolling many Malvis or religious leaders. Though the MKP had previously engaged with this group as well, as I showed earlier, it was Sibatullah's own interventions that furthered, furthered this recruitment of the religious leaders. This was because of Sibatullah's mystical Marxist framing of the political party of the Communist Party, which made the party more attractive to Malvis. Sibatullah even convinced some Malvis these religious leaders to see the party's work as more spiritually rewarding than conventional religious practices. During an MKP district tour, for instance, he conversed, Sibatullah conversed with a local Malvi who, and I quote, after hearing about the party program, replied, Alhamdulillah, or praise be to God, your party's work is good, and the sawab or divine blessing you will get from this party work is more than namaz. Namaz is the obligatory prayers that Muslims do. So this is a Malvi who's saying that actually fighting for communism and organizing for communism is more, uh, will give you more divine blessing than actually praying, um, doing the, you know, the five times prayer that Muslims do. Like his students, Sibatullah would invite these Malvis to local MKP meetings. And eventually the party, the MKP was even able to organize what it called annual mullah congregations. As Imtiaz Alam, you know, the Punjab provincial secretary at the time were called, after the party, and I quote Teazalam here, after the party connected with Sibatullah, we would also hold Eid, ul Mil Eid Milad ul Nabi celebrations with mullahs coming into congregation, joining hands against feudalism. They delivered fatwas, these mullahs against feudalism, quoting the Quran and the Hadith. These were peasant mullahs, from the, often from the Ubaidullah Sindhi tradition, and over a thousand would come, end quote. Sibatullah even supported these peasant mullahs as they built their own mosques independent from those patronized by the Magdooms. And at which a childhood friend recalled, Sibatullah would also deliver anti-landlord sermons or khutbahs. The Magdoom landlord Ghulam Mirashah even tore down five of these mosques precisely because of their insurrectionary character, an incident that provoked peasants to proclaim, and I quote um, from the party circulars, the Jagidar's injustice has extended from the peasants' homes to the house of God. But those days aren't far when, with the power of God, peasants will destroy the Jagidar's home, end quote. 
alongside the widening of the movement to apprentices, their families, and these peasant mullahs, was also a deepening of the movement. As the dispute over this mosque suggests, Sibutullah's theory and practice of mystical Marxism had begun to undermine hegemonic Islam, especially claims about its incompatibility with socialism or communism. Other illust- incidents illustrate this further. In 1976, as the peasant movement was in full swing, the Makhdoom landlord had a grandson whom he wanted to call a name Sibatullah, which literally translates as the color of God. And the landlord actually attempted to get Sibatullah to change his name because he wanted his own son to be, there could not be two Sibatullahs in the village. This conflict over who was entitled to use this name was, in essence, a dispute over competing visions of Islam, with many peasants ultimately siding with Sibatullah, insisting, and I quote from a newspaper documenting this at the time, in our Sufi, in our Sufi Sibatullah, the color of God is pure. End quote. So here we have peasants siding in this in this dispute over who gets to who gets to take the name Sibatullah, Sibatullah Mazari or the landlord's son. And many peasants ultimately sided with Sibatullah. This breach between Sufi Islam, between the Sufi Islam of the Makhdooms and the mystical Marxism of Sibatullah was widened even further when the Makhdooms enlisted the support of Sin's Pir of Pagado, otherwise a widely admired Sufi peer in the region. In attempt, in attempt to suppress the peasant insurrection. According to Imtiaz Alam, the peer of Pagaro, with whom the Magdum had ties through marriage, I believe one of his daughters was married, or he was married to the peer of Pagaro's daughter, the peer of Pagaro sent approximately 400 of his armed disciples, the Hurs, to suppress the peasant insurrection in Sibatullah's village. Not only did Sibatullah and his supporters successfully fight off the attack, but in the process, Peasants gained further proof of the exploitative, even violent nature of elite Sufism. That's a picture of one of Sibutullah's comrades who was killed in one of these encounters with the Jagidars or landlords. And that's, a, that's an obituary for him. Um, both the widening and deepening of the peasant movement ultimately led to a radicalization of its demands. Whereas before, peasants had demanded an end to their expulsions, security of tenure, and fairer, more transparent sharecropping, by the mid-1970s, tenants occupied land and refused to sharecrop at all. As Imtiaz Alam wrote at the time, and I quote, the struggle in Sibatullah's village is one of the most advanced struggles in Punjab, where peasants have completely stopped sharecropping and also everything else, and have made the peasant committees strong, end quote. Undergirding these tenant refusals and their creation of alternative peasant institutions was a growing belief amongst peasants that jagidari or landlordism was essentially exploitative and that it could not be reformed and needed to be abolished. What furthered the popularity of this belief was the alignment between the landlord's practices and Sibatullah's claims about them. That is, as tenants witnessed landlords reject even their modest reformist demands and coercively suppress their movement, tenants became increasingly convinced of Sibatullah's mystical Marxist claim that Jagidari was, in essence, exploitative. As Malik Akbar put it to me, and I quote, tenants came to realize that the prevailing system, the fact that some have land and with it rule over others who don't, was what the landlords had created, not God, and was in fact against God's decision, end quote. With that realization, Malik Akbar continued, and I'm quoting Malik Akbar again, 
the tenant movement entered another stage where they now thought it was possible to overturn jagidari, end quote. Rather than a more reformed, less exploitative jagidari or landlordism, tenants essentially wanted its abolition. Um, this is a popular kind of slogan from that era, um, which captures this kind of abolitionist spirit of its slogan that's a Punjabi slogan called, uh, which is in, in Punjabi, Jirarawe Uikhawe, um, which translates as whoever tills the soil should eat from it. Um, and this is like this slogan is on the left, and this is an image from the party circular um, promoting that slogan. And the party, the Mazurkasan party, promoted that slogan. It's an anti landlord and abolitionist kind of slogan. This is a picture I found from the circular from the party's internal circulars. It's a picture towards the end of, um, it's a picture of Major Ishaq, the MKP president. It's very grainy. And on the right next to him is actually Sibutullah, but a very, very grainy picture that you probably can't make out of. But, um, and they're both Major Ishaq, the president, and the Sibutullah are speaking at a press conference in 1978. Um, one of the few pictures, I think, of the MKP president, Major Ishaq, who in the Pakistani context is quite a well-known national historical figure. Um, one of the few pictures of Major Ishaq with Sibutullah. Okay, so to conclude, in his founding statement on subaltern studies, historian Ranajit Guha argued that India's political elites, including its communist parties, had failed to become hegemonic to establish consent for their rule, result, resulting in what he would later call their dominance without hegemony. He explained communism's failure to lead the peasant masses in part due to their attitude towards religion. For it was Indian communism's dismissal of peasant religious beliefs and inability to acknowledge peasant religious beliefs disruptive potential that partly accounted for their historic failure to lead the peasant masses. Communist leaders' disdain for religion continues to this day in India as well as in Pakistan. The relationship of the MKP to peasant subalterns like Sibutullah, however, reveals an alternative relationship between communism and the peasantry, one where communism was less dismissive of the religious beliefs of the peasantry. Unlike many communist leaders in the region, MKP leaders did, did see the radical possibilities of religion. And even though their relationship to Islam remained within strategic registers, their openness to Islam encouraged subaltern peasants like Sibatullah to theorize their own relationship to Islam and communism. Rather than ignoring the transformative possibilities of beliefs conventionally exterior to it, communism, at least as practiced by MKP leaders, allowed for the pursuit of these possibilities. Indeed, it was Sibatullah's introduction to the party's Maoist theory and practice that led to his comparative engagement with Islam as well, specifically Maoism's politics of the mass line and the philosophy and practice, which entailed a deep immersion in the beliefs and practices of the masses in order to generate a vernacular-driven communist universalism. This Maoist politics and mass line politics steered Sibatullah towards circulating insurgent Sufisms and a comparative inquiry into the relationship with Marxism. Driven to Sufism by Maoism's vernacular orientation, Sibatullah discovered shared universalist elements that then enabled him to equate the two, an equivalence he centered on a joint commitment to truth, an equivalence that I call mystical Marxism. 
Contra Guha, Contra Ranajit Guha, who saw insurgent religious consciousness as a precursor to a secular revolutionary class one, Sibatullah fathomed a religious consciousness that did not simply mediate for revolutionary class consciousness, but was made coincidental with it on the terrain of truth. Sibutullah also expressed this mystical Marxism in his political practice, as he transformed his apprentices into revolutionary Sufi disciples, recruited Sufi-infected Malvis and the mullahs, organized annual mullah congregations, and he built alternative insurgent mosques. Though Sibatullah's theory and practice of mystical Marxism led to both a widening and a deepening of the MKP-led peasant movement, especially as he undermined landlordism's hegemony over Islam, it was ultimately, the movement was ultimately unsuccessful owing to the fragmentation of the party and the wider anti-left state repression begun by Bhutto and continued by General Zia. I don't get into that much in this presentation, but in another version of this, I do. Nonetheless, Sibatullah's mystical Marxism left its traces in successors like Allah Baksh, who we met at the beginning of this presentation. Traces which, in pointing to an unrealized past, evoke possibilities for a future. A future in which religious and secular, secular thought, widely polarized in today's world, may be united for a practice of liberation. I'm just going to end with some pictures. That's Subatullah towards the end of his life. Um, and that's his tombstone. Subatullah died in 2000. The circumstances of his death were also related to politics. And he, in fact, died at the hands of uh, Jagidar or landlord. Um, which I don't talk about much at all here, but it's another very interesting and very tragic story. Um, that's his, the tombstone on the epitaph. It says, fighter of socialist struggle and peasant leader. And this tombstone is just right outside. It's in this village, no one still, no peasant owns the land. It's all owned by the major landlord. And this tombstone is on the estate itself. And right next to the compound where one of the major landlords lives. Um, thank you.